Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we pick a saga, offer a not-so-quick review of the plot and major themes, <laughs> and then we judge its overall quality at the Saga Thing. It has been a while, my friend. It's good to be with you again. Now, I've been feeling a, uh, a bit of saga withdrawal, honestly, these past few weeks. Well, the little hiatus we took was desperately needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but hey, we're fully refreshed and ready to jump into a new year of sagas. Hey, we're fully refreshed. That may be a little bit strong, but uh, I'd say that we are back and ready for action either way. All right. Uh, well, we're taking on a fairly obscure saga this time around, aren't we? Well, obscure is a relative term. I'm sure it enjoyed a certain degree of popularity in its day. It wouldn't have been written otherwise. Well, you could say about any saga. <laughs> Although with this one, I'm not actually sure that's true. Well, it, it's an interesting saga anyways. Uh, one of the more fun ones we've done, actually. I really like oh, this. Oh, okay. Before you debate the saga's merits, uh, why don't you hit the button and let the uh, good people know a little something about it? Oh, so fast this time. Okay. In this saga, we follow our eponymous hero from his humble birth to an illustrious old age. Known for his feats of strength, your jaw will drop when he carries a fish, breaks the neck of a bull with his bare hands, fights bears, and wrestles one of the Blue Man group to the death. As a loyal servant of Earl Haukon, his adventures carry him all the way to the exotic Greek Isles, where he wins the favor of King John, who then gives him the clever nickname, The Strong. But like every good Icelandic hero, this strong man eventually returns home to seek a peaceful life and have a family. But a peaceful life isn't easy for a man with superhuman strength. And before he can gather his wits, Finn Bogey's caught up in a series of feuds with local misfits and bullies. Along the way, you'll discover the truth behind Finn Bogey's feud with that Vattensdal dullard yokel Ingemunderson, and watch him get the upper hand against his enemies time and again. This is a saga for saga lovers. It's the saga of Finn Bogey the Strong. Now, I'm very curious to find out what you think of this saga. I mean, neither one of us has read this one before, and we haven't had a chance to speak about it at all before now. No, um, and this was this was my first time reading it, and I just finished it last week, so I haven't really had much to say about it before that. We haven't had a chance to talk since then. That's right. Now, so because of that, you're getting some pretty fresh responses to Finn Bogey's saga from us in this episode, and mm-hmm. I imagine we'll both have a better sense of our feelings by the time we get to the judgments. Uh, true. But I get, I have a gut feeling that you quite like this one. Am I right? Well, you know, I would say that my first impression is favorable, of course. Um, I actually read it a few times over the holidays, and each time I read it, I found it a little bit more charming. Um, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I think that said, I'm not going to commit to praising or blaming the saga just yet, because, you know, John, talking to you always helps me develop a, a more informed opinions on things. Oh, oh, you flatterer. Uh, now, can I convince you that this is a bad saga? 
Well, you can be persuasive, but in this case, I, I kind of doubt it. I mean, first of all, I didn't say that you actually form my opinions for me, though that would be nice. I, I just said that conversation is helpful. And second of all, I, I think that there's enough quality episodes here to rank this one higher than just a bad saga. It's oh, yeah, no, 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 pretty no, no. good. I definitely agree. Um, although I do think that Finn Bogey saga remains obscure for a reason. Mm. I mean, it, it, it lacks a degree of originality. The episodes tend to be fun, but we've seen most of them before, either the literal stories or at least the thematic components sure. in other sagas. Yeah, I mean, I think I know what you're getting at there, but but I don't know that that's a fair judgment. Really? Yeah. You're going you're to argue that this is an original saga? No, I'm definitely not arguing that. We'll, we'll see <laughs> where it's not. Um, but, you know, you're right that a lot of what happens in Finn Bogey's saga is derivative, but but being derivative doesn't determine quality of a saga, I don't think. Well, I think it's a factor. It is a factor, but you and I both know that most of medieval lit and Renaissance lit, for that matter, and everything that's written today, is derivative. It's always adapting, building on, and working with literary traditions that precede it. So, Absolutely. And also, I don't think you should forget that Grettir's saga is basically a late composition celebrating saga lit's greatest hits. And you loved that one, and you can't get more derivative than Grettir's saga. You, you've jumped ship on me now. We're talking about Grettir's saga? <laughs> you can absolutely get more derivative than Grettir's saga. This saga, for example, just look at Finn Bogey's saga. <laughs> now, did I did I uh, say a second ago that talking to you inspires me? I I think I meant exhausts. You exhaust me, John. <laughs> Listen, we've been away for a while. It's my job to get you back into shape by challenging you on everything. No, it's not. It is, actually. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's... <laughs> no. All right. Let's not do that. <laughs> let's, let's just shift the focus a bit here so we can get something done. <laughs> Fine. Uh, would you like to know what the Hrovenkill measurement for Finn Bogey Saga is? Oh, boy, would I? I thought you might. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to venture a guess before I tell you? Well, I legitimately sat down and thought about this for some reason. <laughs> uh, you have a lot of free time. Yeah, well, you know, Finn Bogey Saga is about 40 or so chapters long. 43. Yeah. That's right. So, okay, 43. But that doesn't mean much because chapters are different lengths. So I'm going to have to guess on a vague memory of how long Hrofenkel's saga is. And oh, I can give you a hint on that one. Yeah? It's exactly one Hrofenkel long. Oh, thank you. That's very helpful. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm going to guess that Finbogi's saga is about three Hrofenkel's long. Maybe 3.3. Hmm. I'm going to go a little bit higher because I feel like it might be just slightly more than three. Well, apparently uh, you didn't enjoy the saga as much as you thought you did because it felt too long to you. Hmm. Uh, it weighs in at a muscular 2.6. Robin 2.6? That's close to 3. I think I should get some credit there. It's not very close to 3.3. Well, I, I, I hedged and moved that direction, but I that's said a, 3 at the that's beginning. That's 0.7. That's an entire Greenlander saga difference. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, just, I want credit for my 3, not my 3.3. I see. All right. Now, as we've said before, this is one of the lesser known sagas. Part of the reason for that, I think, is because it's considered fairly late with a rough date of composition in the early 14th century. Now, I'm actually surprised that the late date is offered as a reason. Uh, many of the best sagas are in that same category, right? That, that sort of late era. Mm-hmm. Think about this. Uh, Njal's saga, Greta's saga, uh, Viglin's saga are all later sagas from the early 14th century. Uh, it's easy to lose Viglin and Finbogi, though, in those shadows cast by Njal and Greta. That is. But uh, I think we showed why Viglin's saga is such an interesting text and worthy of further study uh, when we did that one. So maybe we can do the same for Finbogi. I'm not sure I feel confident about that, uh, but maybe. But this might be one where I agree with the relative silence on the saga. Really? Well, maybe. 
Hmm. Did you do any research on Finbogey while preparing for the episode? Of course I did. I always do. You know that. Uh-huh. Come on. And what did you find? Uh, I didn't find much, actually. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I did get a quote from uh, Paul Schock, who points out that uh, Finbogey Saga uses more colloquial language than other sagas, which hmm. is kind of interesting. That one gives us a, a glimpse into the conversational language of uh, the early 14th century. So that's, Fair that's quite fascinating. Uh, but there's not much else out there. No, uh, but I did find a few quotes that kind of insult the saga a bit, so you might like those. <laughs> no, 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 no. You misunderstand. I'm not arguing that it's a terrible saga. Okay. It's just not going to be a critical darling. Ah, oh, that's uh, fair. So, but do share those with me. Okay, well, this first one is from the entry for Finbogi Saga in uh, Medieval Scandinavia and Encyclopedia, which you can access on Google Books, uh, or at least mm-hmm. parts of it. This one says, The saga of Finbogi the Mighty is not one of the better crafted Islandiga Sogar. Characterization is flat, and the plot is little more than a repetitious series of episodes designed to present the hero in a favorable light. Now, that's harsh, but I would say eminently fair as a criticism. (laughs) Well, it is, but the paragraph concludes with a quick compliment. The narrative is nevertheless lively and makes good reading, and I do agree with that. No, I agree with that as well. I think that's that's quite a fair assessment overall. All right. Uh, then I found this next one in a 1992 review of Bachman and Ellingson's translation. That's the green one with the gold uh, lettering mm-hmm. on the front. If you if you've read this one, um, it says one of the least studied of the East Lending Asolger, Finnbogasaga Rama, has tended to be dismissed as a late, unhistorical work, unduly influenced by folk tales and the Fornaldar Sogar. Wait, unduly influenced. Mm-hmm. What does that even mean? Influence is influence. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, can a saga be duly influenced by folktales? <laughs> we'll have to find one that is. Yeah. Oh, and uh, do you know who wrote that, John? Who? John Kennedy. Really? Mm-hmm. In 1992, you say? Yep, that's the one. Uh, that's good for him. I'm glad he's staying busy. <laughs> now, I've got one more note. Uh, just to be clear, that wasn't the John F. Kennedy. It's another guy named John Kennedy. Yes, understood. <laughs> Now, I've got one JFK Jr. No, it's not him either. It's a different one. <laughs> anyway, I've got one more note, but I I can't remember where it came from. So um, you're supposed to write those things down. I know, but I was researching at the kitchen table at my in-laws' house just after Christmas. So forgive me for my lack of diligence. <laughs> Anyways, this one is uh is more complimentary. Now I I've only got a paraphrase here, but it, it says that the whoa, st- whoa, 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 wait. what I'm not even sure this is admissible. You're paraphrasing a source that you can't identify? It's like if one of my students turned this in in a paper, I'd reject it. (laughs) Well, that's fair, but this is just us chatting, so it's it's all right. (laughs) Anyway, this this one says that the style of this saga is lucid but more colloquial than that of most of the Eastlanding Asolgar. And the aims of the author were clearly entertainment and the literary rehabilitation of Finbogi. Um, uh, Wait a minute, John. Mm Mm-hmm. I know where this came from. <laughs> this is Paul Shock. It's it's what we started uh-huh. with. Uh-huh. Yeah, so we've come full circle. Yes, right it back is. to where we started. It is. Uh, you know, I must have written this one down twice, only more completely the second time around because it sounded a little bit more professional. <laughs> oh well, what are you well, going to do? It's a compliment to Shock. You yeah. really liked him. I thought uh, it was great. Now let that be a lesson to everyone out there that taking good notes involves a certain degree of attention. And accuracy. 
Indeed it does. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> now, the, the only other thing that I found was an article all about the connections between Finn Bogey Saga and Vatenstahl Saga. Right. Well, and I think most people who read Finn Bogey Saga inevitably come to it for exactly those reasons mm-hmm. or realize very quickly that what they're getting is the other half of the Vatensdahl story. Right. Now, our listeners will hopefully remember that we've encountered Finn Bogey before. We sure have. Uh, now, if you go back to our Vatensdahl Saga episode... You'll find that uh, Finbogi was one of the antagonists. Wait, now, why can't he just be a character? Well, because he was trying to humiliate the Ingemundersons and then challenged Yokel and Thorstein to a duel. Hmm. That's pretty antagonistic. Perhaps. And, and you might also recall that Finbogi fails to show up for that duel. He does, but in his defense, the weather was pretty bad. I, you know, I can't blame him for that. I, I didn't. I didn't hear you defending Finbogi <laughs> back when we recorded Vatensdala Saga. We, oh, nearly no. outla- we nearly outlawed him. This is because I didn't really know Finn Bogey yet. You know, there, there are two sides to every story, and Vodensdahl Saga really presents a biased perspective, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Finn Bogey actually comes off pretty well in the saga of Finn Bogey the Strong. Right. <laughs> right, and the saga named after him, which is not biased at all. Oh, it's, it's biased. I mean, it's so biased, in fact, that most scholars who've commented on the saga suggest the whole thing was written just to counter the narrative in Vatensdahl's saga mm-hmm. and, and maybe recover a little bit of Finn Bogey's character. And by the um, way, to, cre- to commit character assassination on one of the Ingemundersons. Oh, poor Yokel. Anyway, <laughs> we're, we're going to have to, you know, that conversation is going to come up in the second part or third part of our summary. Depending. Second part. <laughs> second part, maybe. Uh, when we get to the conflict with Yokel and the Ingemundersons. Great. Um, well, there's some fascinating stuff there, and I think we'll have a lot to say about how these two sagas handle the same story. Mm-hmm. We've just been dealing with this with Greenlander and uh, Eric the Red. That's right. Uh, for now, however, I think it's high time we start to make our way through the first part of Finbogi's saga. Sounds good. Let's do it. Section 1. An Ignoble Birth. Now, like most sagas, this one begins with a genealogy of relevant characters. Now, do you want to go through them all? There's quite a few there. I, I don't think we need to do that for this one. Um, mm. But we can at least highlight a few of the more important figures for the first part of the saga. Okay, then I'll start with these. Uh, the first person that we need to know is Asbjorn Detias, mm-hmm. whose nickname Detias means something like falling beam or something. That's my job. Oh, sorry. You can tell the story of that if you want in the judgment section. Well, I have I have some idea, but I need to look into that story. A beam fell down. Yes, well. <laughs> anyway, you've got plenty of time to figure that out. Um, Asbjorn is a strong man with a reputation for being somewhat proud and a little bit difficult. He was originally from Halogaland in Norway, but he then emigrated to Iceland and settled in the Flatairdal region, where he holds the Goldearth or the chieftaincy. Now, he's married to Thorgird, who is the sister of Thorgir, the Gothi of Lostvatn. Now, this guy is pretty important for a variety of reasons. As far as this saga is concerned, he's the leading figure in the region and the go-to guy for advice. Outside of this saga, he's known for his role in Iceland's conversion to Christianity, but that's another story. And I have no doubt that we will speak about him more in the judgment section. Oh, I think so. Uh, do I sense an early candidate for Thingman here? Maybe. There are a lot of good ones in here, but uh, but I definitely like Thorgir better than Asbjorn. Well, yes. Um, but you were trying to tell us about Asbjorn's wife, Thorgir. That's right. Uh, but there's not really a lot else to say. She's beautiful and a bit stubborn. Uh, that's about all we learn about her right now, really. We what can a mo- woman. Well, we can move along uh, to Thorgir and Asbjorn's lovely daughter, Thorny. Thorny. Now, there's a name. That's much more straightforward <laughs> than Briar Rose or something like that. You know what you're getting with Thorny, don't you? 
Uh, I don't think that's how the name works. Oh, okay, it does for me. <laughs> now, Thorny isn't going to be around for long. No, she doesn't die or anything. She's no, just no. going to move off stage very quickly in Act 1 here and, and never come back, I don't think. Right, but a lot of the later action kind of indirectly revolves around her. Uh, yeah. So the Well, the saga is actually set in motion by her love affair with a Norwegian called Skithy. Mm. Now, she wants to marry this guy, but her father doesn't like the match. That makes sense. I mean, look at Asbjorn's own marriage. He mm-hmm. he tied himself to Thorgir of Ljosvatn through marriage and expanded his influence significantly through that. Um, I doubt love played a significant role in his decision to wed Thorgir. Oh, you uh, cynic. Oh, uh-huh. so who is this Skidi and what does he bring to the table? That's the question that has to be well, asked. He's actually not a bad match. Um, the saga does tell us that he's from a noble family in Norway, but mm. Asbjorn is still angry about it all. Why? I mean, because Skidi doesn't have anything to offer in Iceland, I mm-hmm. guess. His Norwegian ties are pretty good, but maybe Asbjorn's thinking it doesn't help him within Iceland itself. I think that is possible. Uh, but he could also just be mad because they fell in love and he didn't get to do the arranging. Mm, that sounds like a father in the Icelandic mm. sagas. Uh, anyway, Thorgood is, is a bit more tenderhearted and she helps the two lovers elope one summer when Asbjorn is away at the thing. Skithy takes Thorny back to Norway with him and weds her there. I don't imagine that Asbjorn was very happy when he got home from that thing. No. Uh, he is mm. furious with Thorgerd for allowing the Norwegian to take Thorny away. I'm so glad that we're going to be able to stop saying her name. <laughs> you don't, I'm not a fan. <laughs> it's a hard name to take seriously. Uh, well, you know, Asbjorn is the kind of guy who holds a grudge pretty well. He sure is, yeah. Yeah. So he gets back at Thorgerd a few seasons later when Thorgerd becomes pregnant with their second child. And as he's preparing to leave for the thing, he looks at her and says, I know that you're expecting a baby and that your pregnancy is well advanced. Now, whatever this child is, it's not to be reared. You must expose this child to the elements. What a jerk. Yeah. I mean, it seems incredibly unreasonable to Thorgard, who reminds yeah. Asbjorn that he is a wealthy and wise man. She says, that would be an outrageous course of action if a poor man took it. But it is particularly so for you, since you are perfectly capable of providing for this child. <laughs> what is that voice? It sounds like a mad old woman. What? <laughs> I just like that voice. I don't know. Why. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I don't know that that's a, a, a young woman, you know, that's pregnant. But hey, it, she well, already has an adult daughter. That's true. She does. Maybe she's getting up there. Uh, not too far, though. Uh, this scene actually comes up in scholarship about exposing children quite often since mm-hmm. it's one of the few references in the literature to discuss this kind of thing. So uh, we've seen exposures in the past, though. There, there's usually some kind of rationale, if we can call it that, offered mm-hmm. for the the abandonment of a newborn child. Right. Now, remember that um, Helga the Fair from Gunlog Saga was uh-huh. exposed as an infant. Yeah. Yeah, I completely forgot about that one. That's a good one. Well, I'm just trying to avoid mentioning your thing, man, again. Uh, <laughs> just you wait. She... <laughs> She was put out because of her father's dream, right? If you remember, mm-hmm. uh, he believed that his future daughter would cause the death of two men. Exactly. And he had that dream about the two birds, right? Mm-hmm. The birds, whatever. But uh, but I don't think she's ever actually exposed. Her mother makes arrangements for her to be raised elsewhere, I think, before the exposure happens. Right. But it's interesting that because of the prophecy about her, that Helga's mm-hmm. father says the baby should only be exposed if it's a girl and kept if it's a boy. Well, I mean, if it's a boy, then the baby isn't the one in the prophecy. So mm-hmm. I guess that one's safe to keep. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, all right, I'll go for it. You remember Thorkel Scratcher. Scratcher. Ugh. 
He was the illegitimate like son that. of Thorgrim of Karnsa and his mistress, um, and that didn't please Thorgrim's wife, understandably. No. So she had the baby exposed to punish Thorgrim. Now, that's actually closer to the situation. Um, as Bjorn explains that he wants Thorgir to expose the baby regardless of its sex because he was so heartbroken by the loss of Thorny. And he mm-hmm. says, When you gave our daughter Thorny to that Norwegian without my knowledge, I resolved that I would not raise any more children so that you could then give them away without my approval. Right, he, th- he essentially threatens her, right? saying oh, she'd yes, better yes. expose that baby or else. To the moon, Thorgid! To the moon! <laughs> Jesus. Uh, That's a modern reference. Yes, it is. Uh, actually, no, it isn't. <laughs> it's, it's a very da- it's a very dated, slightly disturbing reference. Modern in the grand scheme of things, uh, if you're looking at the course of human anyway, history. Anyway, Thorgrid has the baby not long afterwards, and it's a healthy <laughs> and very handsome baby boy. No, he's not just healthy and handsome. He's a remarkable child. Uh, Exceptional. Everyone who sees him is blown away by just how amazing this kid is. Yeah, this is just the beginning of the heaps of unearned praise the author is going to pile on this kid. He's just so awesome. And it gets kind of exhausting after a while. Well, that's just your opinion. Yes, it is. That's why I said it. Yeah. Now, because she fears her husband, Thorgrid arranges for a couple of servants to abandon the boy. They carry him far away from the farmstead and lay him down between two boulders with a large stone slab pulled over him. And then they put a piece of meat in his mouth and walk away. Mm-hmm. It's kind of awful. Well, it is. I mean, historically, certainly it is. Uh, but in this case, we know it's not that awful because he's going to survive. Mm-hmm. I mean, there really aren't often exposed children in these stories that don't get rescued because obviously they wouldn't then be the subject of a story. That's a fair point. I mean, I... I I guess you'll have to forgive me for letting my humanity creep in there for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I I do have a a quick question for you about this part of the text. Um, Mm -hmm. I I don't know if you have an answer, so feel free to say uh, I don't know if you don't know. Oh, I always know. (laughs) So so why? (laughs) I shouldn't say that until I hear the question. Yeah. Why do they put a hunk of meat in his mouth? I would consider that a choking hazard. Um, I mean, I suppose it could be, but if you're exposing the kid, you're not necessarily concerned about keeping his airway <laughs> clear. True. Maybe it's uh, it's there to choke him. No, I actually have an idea about this, but it's kind of grim. All right. Do you want to hear it? I do want to hear I uh, asked you, so well, tell me. if you're trying to expose a child, right? Up till now, remember, what we've been seeing is people who don't actually want to expose the child, mm-hmm. right? It's always people who are planning to have the kid rescued somehow or who are secretly hoping the kid will be rescued somehow. Sure. We never get any indication that Thorgird actually expects this kid to be rescued. Right? She's legitimately exposing him. Mm-hmm. The hunk of meat in his mouth, I think the concern would be that the child crying would be too much to take. Right, The child screaming would be too difficult. Mm-hmm. And so a, a piece of meat in his mouth keeps him from getting hungry and crying until something comes along and kills him. Oh, lovely. Uh, or until the elements simply freeze him. Sure. Right, because well, I, I was wondering if it was meant to be nourishment for him for a, a period, but, but I don't know how a baby... What would be the point of nourishing a, a child you're exposing? Well, yeah, it's it's a weird idea. Right. But that seems like what you're saying is, is keeping him calm until right. a bird comes by. I mean, it's, you know, it's sort of, it's it's equal parts kind of a, a gentle act and a, a really, really cold-blooded one. Yeah. It's crazy. All right. Well, thanks for that. I You really uplifted my spirits. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Yeah. I hope he's okay. So, the boy is born. Uh, Let's find out what kind of a kid he is in the next section. Section 2. Erdicott. Erdicott? 
<laughs> Erdicott. And now, as you said in the previous section, these exposed babies are always found, and this case isn't any different. The saga turns now to Serpa and Guest, a poor couple who live nearby on a farm called Toftir. Right. Now, Serpa is actually Thorgird's foster mother. Sort of convenient, really. Yeah, and that, that actually confuses me because I'm not sure why the sister of a wealthy and respected man like Thorgir of Ljosvatten would uh, have been fostered by a poor and ugly woman like Serpa. Hmm. No offense, Serpa. Well, I mean, let's not forget that she wasn't so poor at first. Mm. Right? Thorgir had brought her to Flatterdal when she married Asbjorn because she couldn't bear to be too far from her foster mother. Mm-hmm. But Asbjorn thought that Serpa was the ugliest creature he'd ever seen. <laughs> And he didn't like having her around Thorgard. That's right. So he sent her away. Right. Like, with with no money or anything. Right. Which is how she ends up marrying Guest, who's kind of useless. It's a <laughs> lovely story. Asbjorn's coming off rather poorly in this saga. He really is. Uh, he is unquestionably a jerk. But uh-huh. all of this is designed to set up a rags to riches story. That's right. It is. So, uh, you know, you can't have him just be growing up riches to riches. It's boring. So. Right. So you have to have your riches to rags story first. Yeah. So on the same day that Thorgird gives birth and this baby is exposed, Surpa sends Guest out to look for some moss she needed for some kind of craft project. And he hears the baby crying, finds him, and then brings him home to Surpa. Right. Now, I mean, Surpa unsurprisingly suspects that this might be Thorgrid's baby. Smart girl. Right. I mean, they can't, you know, the, the, the countryside isn't just littered with babies <laughs> sucking on hunks of meat while they wait to die. Uh, so she thinks quickly, tells guests to get a large blanket and spread it out in the main room. She's got a cunning plan. Oh. They're going to pretend to give birth to the baby and claim it as their own. <laughs> now, that's a crazy plan. And, and Guest knows it's crazy. I mean, no right. one's going to believe this is our kid, he says to her, because mm-hmm. this child is far too good looking to bear any resemblance to either of us. <laughs> I love his humility here. Right. Now, I actually really like that they're kind of signposting this uh, mm-hmm. because this is something that we've seen before. If you remember, yeah. uh, we see it as a folkloric element in the kind of more Fronalda saga-y kind of sagas, like Ragnar's saga, where, yes. if you remember, this is his second wife, Aslog. Uh, her background is the same way. She's fostered by an ugly couple who have murdered her protector. That's right. Uh, she was and we have the in- same story where somebody says... Well, she's beautiful, but her parents are hideous. And <laughs> well, they'll be well, rubbing stuff all over her face to uh, make her ugly. Right, they're like smearing dung on her face or whatever. Right, uh, and calling her ugly crow. Yeah, and these guys do the same exact thing. They they right. dress them in rags and stuff right. like that. Yeah, uh, but it doesn't matter because you know Serpa is going to have this baby, whether it's plausible or not. <laughs> uh, she tells guests to run over to Thorgird's farmstead. And ask for all the baby supplies they've got. <laughs> now, I mean, shouldn't all of this be quite clear to everyone in the region, but especially right. at these two farms? I mean, they could put two and two together immediately. I, they, they know that Thorgird and Serpa are close. They know that Thorgird was pregnant. And they know that Thorgird exposed the baby. Where do they think this little guy came from? Uh, well, there's hardly any mystery to it. I mean, the the saga stork comes along and <laughs> delivers this saga baby. No, there's no mystery to this. It's right. very, very obvious. Um, the news does travel around that Asbjorn and Thorgird expose their newborn son. And this 
brings great shame on the house since everyone considered it a terrible thing to do, especially for a man of Asbjorn's standing. So all of this suggests that people actually believed Mm -hmm. that Thorgird's baby was truly gone. In the same paragraph, the author notes that everyone also learned about the birth of Serpa's baby and wondered how it was possible given her advanced age. Right. So people may not be bright, but they are suspicious. But somehow they just can't figure it out, can they? Well, I think it's just it's this, we're in, we're in the realm of folklore here, right? This is one of yeah. those folktale motifs that you're just meant to accept. No one's right. supposed to put these things together until it becomes sort of narratively convenient for them to do so. Right. Now, the saga at this point jumps forward a bit as the baby grows into a young boy. Oh, we're not going to get any of the exploits of this amazing baby? <laughs> Sadly, no, we don't. But uh, you should feel free, John, to go back and maybe fill in those blanks in, in some prequels to the saga if you want oh, to. Oh, God. <laughs> in the meantime, Serpa and Guest do an exceptional job of raising the baby. Now, I know you'll talk about this in the nickname section of the Judgments, but they, they decide to name the kid Urdakot, mm-hmm. which means Scree Cat, because Guest found him in a scree of a mountain. Right. Now, he's called Wildcat. In the Bachman and Erlingson translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Scree Cat is a bit better, I think, because it sort of matches the translation. Yeah. Either way, it's not a good name. Uh, I mean, I, <laughs> I really don't like saying Scree Cat. I didn't like reading it. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to stick with Erdakot. Right. Which is what the um, the Sagas of Icelanders, yes. uh, the f- complete collection does. That's what they I'm use. not sure that's any better, by the way. No, but I mean, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm stuck with the name they gave him. So Right. So anyway, uh, Erdurkot grows up quickly, and he's a very healthy, robust, and handsome boy, in case you didn't figure that out yet. <laughs> right. The saga then tells us that at the age of three, he's as big as most six-year-olds, and when he's six, he looks like most 12-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> and presumably when he's 12, he looks like most 24-year-olds. Yeah. I see the pattern here. It doesn't bode well for him when he gets to be about 30. <laughs> well, you know, because he's so robust, these these rumors then they continue to circulate about his parentage, and the, people are saying there's just simply no way that Surpa and Guest could create such a remarkable specimen of of virile manhood. Right. So it can be kind of hard to know what's supposed to be so great about this kid. I mean, you read this part of the saga over, and it's very clear this kid is just a pain in the rear. And now, obviously, in the sagas, it's not necessarily going to mean that you can't be a great figure. Uh, think of Gretir again. Erlikot mm-hmm. uh, likes to visit Thorgrid's farm and just cause all kinds of trouble. Is this beautiful boy the same one who likes to hit the servant women and trip them with his stick? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's quite proud and a bit troublesome, but he's not all bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, Thorgrid likes having him around for obvious reasons, and he couldn't be more loving and caring with Surpa and guests. And as you know, the whole first part of the saga, basically the part we're covering for this part of the summary episode, mm-hmm. it's devoted to cataloging Erdakot's amazing feats of strength. He's a cool guy. Yeah, now the list of his accomplishments is borderline embarrassing. <laughs> In terms of how impressive they are. No, in terms of how ridiculously shameless the author is in building up his hero. Oh, come on. You know the sagas love amazing displays of strength. And in fact, your Thingman Gret here is renowned for lifting giant boulders just to show that he can do it. <laughs> it's true. But Gretter's saga isn't just a series of episodes where Gretter lifts something heavy. No, it's a series of episodes featuring Gretcher's prowess at swimming and lifting and wrestling and killing. I don't see much difference, actually, between the depiction of Gretcher's youth and Erdakot's. They follow the same basic path and accomplish many of the same feats. 
No, it's a legitimate point. Um, there isn't a lot of reason to like young Erdercott, and admittedly, young Greta can be hard to love. Mm-hmm. The only, I guess the only real difference is that Erdercott doesn't go around skinning live horses and killing people <laughs> that are nice to him and setting buildings on fire that are full of men. So. Oh, that's a that's a low <laughs> blow and a complete misrepresentation of Greta's youth. Really? It's, is it a misrepresentation or just an accurate account of, of what I would call a troublesome youth for young that, Greta? That building burning was an accident and you admitted as much in the Yeah, no, section. the building burning is, is fair. But, uh, the, but even if Greta's not terribly likable, at least he feels the a well-rounded character. Yeah. My main complaint about Erdicott is that he he smacks of the folktale. He's so mm-hmm. damn perfect and successful. He's the best at everything he does. And eventually it becomes a little bit one-dimensional and annoying. That's fair. And that's what the critique uh, that we read earlier says. They're, they're flat characters. Mm-hmm. Now, at the same time, I wonder if there are some deep-seated personal issues underlying your frustrations with the character of this uh, perfective magnitude. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 really more the Daniel Sam than the Billy Zagbo in my, in my own life. Uh, so, but uh, tell us more about Erdogan's amazing feats of strength already. All right. Well, let's start with this one from when he was about six years old. Uh, this one reads like something out of a like a tall tale. It's full of exaggerations and impossibilities, which I guess might might be part of what uh, you know can bother some readers. But mm-hmm. it, it is in keeping with the folk fairy tale feeling of the saga's first chapters. Section three: Erdercott and the Fish. Now we're told in chapter four that Erdekot likes to go down to the beach and hang out with the fishermen, mm. as y- many young boys might do. Sure. He, now he gets along well with them, and they often have fun goofing around and joking together. Um, but one day Erdekot goes down to the shore and catches the fishermen unloading the day's catch from their boats. And as a joke, they toss a huge fish at Erdekot's feet and ask him to carry it up on shore for them. Mm-hmm. This fish is about four L's long, which I, I assume is pretty big. So I, you know, I mm-hmm. looked up an L and I determined that it's probably about fifteen feet long, which means this fish is what? like the size of a, a large tiger shark or a small whale. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Um, an L is a unit of measure that means something means different things to different cultures. Right? Yeah. So four L's can be, I mean, it can be anywhere from like five feet up to, as you say, like fifteen feet. Yeah, uh, depending I use on the, the internet. Culture. I just want to make this clear. I used an internet calculator, so I'm pretty sure I'm accurate. Uh, that's so you're looking at a modern L then, right? But I, we're I looking guess. at a text from the 14th century. They didn't have the uh, internet. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, you know, an English L would be like five fourths of a yard, usually how it's written, mm-hmm. and so it's that ends up being 45 inches. Um, so that's that's a long that's a long chunk of cloth. Um, it's a, a, fish. a Danish L, but it's usually used to measure cloth. Sure it is. Uh, a Danish L, we about 25 inches. Uh, but in this case, I'm going to assume that we're looking at what we call a Viking L or a uh, a Norse L. Oh, yes. Uh, which would be about 18 inches and would be the measurement from a man's elbow to the tip of his middle finger. And don't think I can't see you giving me the tip of your middle finger right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the point is, we're probably looking at something more like six feet uh, okay. for the fish, or a little under two meters. That's kind of disappointing, uh, to be still, honest with you. Still a pretty big fish to throw to a six-year-old. I guess. I doubt either one of us could budge the thing very far. Well, uh, we might be able to lift it. I I'm could not sure budge how, it. 
Well, is sure it, is it dead? Because if it's alive, I'm- <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's dead. I think it's dead. But either way, we're we're not fit adult males, so I don't think we you know do very well either way. No, no. Well, well, we are adult males. I, I just would want to make bank on our fitness. <laughs> exactly. Particularly now, on our uh, fitness to carry large fish. Now, Erdekot, uh says that he is actually up to the challenge, which shames me quite a bit. But uh, he'd like to keep the fish if he manages to pull it up on shore. The men obviously don't think that this little boy can do it, uh, so they agree. They say, right. go ahead. But, but anyone who knows anything about folktales knows that this fish is going up the beach with Erdekot. Mm-hmm. And he does manage to pull it up, but not without some difficulty, which I have to admit is a nice touch. I'd be annoyed if he just hoisted the fish over his shoulder and strolled on up the beach with a nod and a wink. <laughs> you and I wouldn't be bothered by that. I, that's a, re- a really funny image, especially if you give him a, a little top hat. But uh, but I, I do mm-hmm. like that uh, this task takes Erdekot a while to accomplish. He exhausts himself by yanking on this fish, and sometimes he's able to move it an inch or so, and sometimes he struggles to move it at all. Right. <laughs> and even though the men are laughing at him, Erdekot just keeps pulling. And in the end, he manages to get the fish on the shore – which is fairly impressive. I mean, remember, we're talking about a six-year-old. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I have a son who's about to be six, and I, I think he struggled just opening a can of tuna. So <laughs> this is this is definitely a marker of Erdekot's potential as a man. Well, or or of the uh, the defective nature of your the genes you've passed on. Well, uh, <laughs> my poor son. Oh, I'm He's sure a- he could open it can of fish. No, I don't think he can, but he is brilliant in his own way. There you go. But Erdekot's not a man yet. No. As impressive as this display was, the fishermen aren't eager to give up a giant fish to Erdekot. In fact, they actually rush up and take the fish back from, from him. <laughs> poor kid. Breaking That's... their agreement. They didn't actually mean to give it to him. They were just messing with him. That is shameful. I mean, I'm sure Gretir or Ale would have found a way after this to kill one or two of those fishermen. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, yeah. But this saga author doesn't want to taint the pristine reputation of his golden boy. Instead, Erdekot sought the help of some friendly neighbors, the Brettings. Mm. Uh, they, and they have some political influence in the region. Yeah, and we only know about the Brettings' political influence because they're mentioned in that first chapter, Genealogy. And this is actually, mm-hmm. I think, the only role that they play. And maybe they come back later, but I can't remember. They're, they show up again a little bit later. Yeah. There you go. So I, I'm guessing that you think his call to some family friends is maybe a weak move. Well, it's another example of what, I, what I've been calling the fairy tale quality of this saga. Erdekot is just a little too good, a little too perfect to ring true. But in the end, he doesn't get to keep the fish because the breadings come down and force the fishermen to turn it over. So the story ends well for him. Right. But uh, no one agreed to help him get the fish home. So the fishermen are pretty ticked at him now. And they decide to just walk away and leave him to drag the fish all the way back by himself. Right. And, And there's a nice little moment in there where it says that his foster parents were extremely pleased with his efforts. Hmm. I like that part. Now, is that your uh, your sentimental side coming out, John? Well, no. I mean, I, I do like a kid who works hard to support his parents. <laughs> I'm looking forward to my own doing that someday. <laughs> that's uh, right. But Come I'm on, mo- kids. <laughs> that's right. I need uh, But I'm more impressed by the author's effort to highlight the extreme poverty that Erdekot's been growing up in. Right? Mm-hmm. A fish, a big fish makes a huge difference to these people. Sure does. Uh, he reminds us on several occasions that Serpa and guests live a difficult life. Uh, and earlier in the chapter... We even get this description of Erdekot's clothes. That's right. He's wearing these rags, right? Yeah, uh, which are now, of course, fish-smelling rags. Uh, He's got a skin cloak, uh, tattered trousers, a homespun trousers, and no shoes. Now, that is a significant contrast with what he could be wearing if he lived with his real parents, Thorgerd and Asbjorn, who are quite well off. Right, right. And the author wants us to be aware of that. 
So he includes these quick descriptions in the early chapters to make sure we don't forget. Right? It's this kind of Cinderella quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, the food he's bringing home to Serpa is such a huge bounty. I mean, this is, you know, for a family that's struggling to get by. And I appreciate that the saga author doesn't actually say that. He just lets the scene speak for itself. Ah, nicely put. Now, now it's not surprising that news of Erdikot's uh, accomplishments spread throughout the region. Uh, and as time goes on, his reputation grows because that of a, this. That is a region without a lot going on. <laughs> well, it's a yeah. slow news day for the region. Hey, did you hear about a kid who carried a fish? Well, it's either that or just, you know, carcasses <laughs> washing up on the shore. So there's not much going on. Uh, you know, the more it grows, the more people wonder whether he's really the son of Serpa and Guest. And, and that is the subject of a lot of gossip for several years. Dim lights go on over the heads of the people <laughs> right, yeah. of the region one by one. Until one fine day when Thorgir the Gothi spoils the whole thing. Things don't turn out bad for everyone. Come on. No, not really. Uh, but Thorgir, who is actually, remember, Erdekot's uncle, is an intelligent guy. And he can spot a ruse when he sees one. Uh, okay, now, now tell everyone what Erdekot was doing before Thorgir revealed the truth of his birth. Uh, I'm not sure I remember. How could you forget this? He was wrestling with four servant women during a feast. Oh, God, that's right. <laughs> yeah, they're rolling all over the house and causing a ruckus. This boy and, and four servant women. I mean, that might be one of my favorite images from the sagas that we've covered. I mean, it's right up there with Glaum riding the rooftops. This little boy and these women rolling all over the place. Right. Now, it is pretty funny to imagine, especially because the servant women aren't really willing participants in these fights. <laughs> oh, no, I don't know. I think they're willing. I mean, he's constantly picking on them. Remember, he likes to trip them with his stick and stuff. So it's probably a great opportunity to get some shots in for them. Yeah, except he's incredibly strong. Erdekot is 12 years old now, which in human years is 24. <laughs> that, that is pretty scary now that you mention it. Uh, anyway, uh, Erdekot has no trouble defeating the four women, uh, but it attracts the attention of Thorgir. And when Thorgir asks Osbjorn who the boy's parents are, he laughs when he's told that Guest and Serpa sired the boy. And he says that he doesn't believe it because Erdekot is bigger and abler than any chieftain's son that he's ever seen. Right, which means for a saga that he can't possibly be a poor man's child. Mm-hmm. Right? In the sagas, a person's outward appearance and bearing often reveals a lot about what's on the inside. And this is a great example of that. Yeah, And so with a, a little bit of manipulation and some promises not to hurt anyone, Thorgird manages to get Erdekot to fetch his foster parents from his home and bring them back for a short interrogation. Well, I mean, that's putting it a bit harshly. Yeah. Uh, but it's what kind of what's happening. I mean, it's true. Uh, in the end, Serpa admits that they found the boy as a baby hidden under a rock on the side of a mountain. Hmm. Thorgir immediately recalls, of course, that Thorgird had been pregnant around that time. Which is pretty remarkable. I mean, how, how does he remember that? Hey, he's a smart chieftain. He knows things. He was far away. Uh, Thorgird... But, but remember, it was the talk of the area at the time. Everyone was sort of shocked by That's this true. act and shame and felt shame for Asbjorn and Thorgird. So, yeah, I guess it must have spread outside the district. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if they're ta- if they cancel talking about a kid carrying a fish, it doesn't take much to get the gossip mill going in these parts. It was a big fish. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Thorgir then admits that she did expose the child, but she explains that she did it because she was afraid of her husband. Mm. Uh, it's kind of a sad scene, actually. She's revealing for the first time this terrible deed, and she's trying to explain that she would happily have kept and raised the boy if her husband wasn't such a terrible and violent man. Right. No, I think the shame is clearly on Asbjorn for being so harsh. And I have to say, Thorgir is more than happy to call him out for it. 
And deservedly so. But but remember that Asbjorn still doesn't acknowledge Urthacult as his own. He just says, I don't know who Sunny is, but I can give him food like other people if that's what you want. True. Uh, but Thorgir is no pushover. He tells Osbjorn he'll stop being friends with him if he doesn't acknowledge Urthacot <laughs> as his son. And reward Serpa and Guest with a small fortune for caring for the boy. Now, and while that may sound somewhat petty, threatening to withdraw his friendship, it's actually a very big deal. I mean, if you paid attention to anything that we've said in this podcast over the years, you'd know that friendship is everything. Mm-hmm. And the friendship of men in power, like a Gothi, is even more than everything. You know, there's something wrong with your phrasing there, but uh, <laughs> but the sense is absolutely right. But Asbjorn is powerful, but nothing compared to Thorgir. Um, he's not going to let that bond go, and Thorgir knows this, so he's taking advantage of that. No, it's, it's actually a great example of how uh, influence works in the social world of the sagas. Thorgir doesn't really have to do much to get what he wants. Uh, but he also doesn't ha- doesn't command respect and authority the way a king might. Hmm. There's this nuance that he has to have in wielding his power. And that nuance in power in medieval Iceland is something that I find really interesting. Yeah, I do too. I mean, um, but, you know, now that the uh, the Ur the Cult is out of the bag, if you will, I, I oh, think that we... Oh, I won't. Uh, that may be the worst pun you've tried yet. Yeah, well, I think we've done much worse. Nah, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> now, Urthacot's life with Serpa and Guest is over, uh, although we should be clear that they are rewarded handsomely for their time spent caring for him, and yes. they're very happy uh, in their future life. Mm-hmm. But now it's time for Urthacot to go on to bigger and better things. More amazing stuff. Section 4. Urthacot and Finbogi. Oh. Finally, Finbogi. Yeah, I know, right? We've been spending so much time on this kid's story. I'm betting everybody forgot this is Finbogi's saga. It's most definitely Finbogi's saga, and we're about to find out why we've been following Urthacot for so long. Well, we're not quite done with Urthacot yet. No. He's living with Thorgard and Asbjorn now, dressed really nicely, continuing to grow into an impressive kid. And he's 12 now, right? Right, which, again, in human years is like 24. <laughs> do you, now, do you want to cover another feat of strength really quickly before we jump? Uh, only if it's really quickly. How fast can you do it? How's this? One day there's a three-year-old bull, and it's giving the servant women all kinds of trouble. Now, they can't milk the cows because they're so afraid of it, and Urthacald is called to help them, and he does. Well, but of course, not without some more snarky behavior from Urthacott. Huh? He won't help them unless they beg and praise him. True, he does. That's true. But I was trying to be quick. By conveniently leaving out the negatives, I can't Quiet, quiet, those. quiet. Now, so Urthacott stands in front of the bull and catches it by the horns as it charges. And with one horn in each hand, Urthacott then wrestles the bull for a long time in saga uh, terminology and then tears up the grass and the ground all around. In the end, Urthacott then uses all of his strength and turns the bull over so suddenly that he breaks its neck. Now, everyone considers that an extraordinary feat, and it actually is, <laughs> unlike carrying a fish. I don't know too many 12-year-olds who can snap the neck of a bull. Well, I mean, that's pretty impressive. But more importantly, did I do that quick enough? Well, it might be a record for us, so congratulations. There you go. Now, okay, let's move on to Finbogi. Right. So, Urthacott has really keen eyesight. Now that That is a weird way to start this part. <laughs> or just open with that. Hey, that's the way we're starting it. Urthacott has a habit of staying outside all night long. No one knows what he's doing. But one night he comes in looking for his father, Osbjorn. And now, it's nice to see these two finally interacting. 
Yeah, and I wouldn't describe it as a particularly warm relationship to this point. No, but, you know, they're communicating, and that's an important first step for these guys. Yeah. Now, he's looking for Osbjorn because he believes that he's seen a fire far out on the horizon of the sea. He knows that sometimes people in trouble at sea set a fire on the ship as a beacon to anyone who can see it. Now, Erthercott wants to have a boat so he can go and investigate before it's too late. And and here we get another feat of strength. Erthercott is given a boat and three farmhands. And at first the farmhands row, but they go so slowly and they quickly get tired from the effort. And when Erthercott takes the oars, the ship then moves faster than when the three men were working together. And Erthercott is able to row for much longer. So it doesn't take them too long to get there. Right. But the ship turns out to be much further away than any of them had imagined. Well, don't forget that they, they pass a dead whale on the way. Well, but Erdekot won't let them stop to collect No. Them. He is focused on that fire in the distance. And when they get there, they find a trading vessel on the verge of sinking. Mm-hmm. Which apparently has been on the verge of sinking for a week. Right. Erdekot's it's been looking out off the coast. Uh, he boards the ship with the farmhands and finds dead bodies scattered all about. But they then find a one one guy who's alive, and his name is... Wait for it. Finbogey. That's right. We've got a Finbogey in Finbogey Saga at long last. Oh, glorious thing. Well, it's worth noting at this point that Finbogey's not a fan of Erthacott's name. When he hears it, he says, that's a strange name. <laughs> well, it is. But I think it's really strange that Finbogey would choose this moment to express his displeasure with his rescuer's name. Well, it's hardly an important detail. Uh, until it is, anyways. And this detail is actually kind of important. Right. Now, now, it turns out that there actually are other men alive on the ship. Nine other men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of trade goods. So, Erthercott saves everything and everyone that he can. What a nice guy. He's such a hero. Uh, in this case, yes. Mm-hmm. He is. But even his heroism can't save the other men in the end. They do make it back to shore... But in a few days, they all die, presumably from their injuries. It's a sad result for them. Although, I will gladly accept those deaths for our body count. Well, that's cold, Andy. Oh, come on. You know that body counts have to come from somewhere, and at least <laughs> Finbogey survived. That's important. Right, it is. Uh, now, the saga describes him as a very good-looking man, big and strong. There are apparently no ugly people in the saga, apart from Serbian. <laughs> right, they're hideous, but everyone else is great. Uh, but he is another good-looking man. Uh, he had excellent weapons, a sword and a shield, a helmet, a coat of mail. And, of course, as the captain of the ship, all the remaining goods from the trading vessel now belong to him. So things are looking up for old Finbogey. Well, for now. I mean, he, he spends the winter selling his goods and hanging out with Erdekot, and the two become good friends in quite a short time. Right. Now, in the spring, Finbogey and Erdekot set out to collect some of the debts owed for the goods they've sold that winter. As they travel, Finbogi turns pale and becomes too weak to ride any further. Uh-oh. He asks Erdekot to stop so they can rest. Uh-oh. This doesn't sound good for Finbogi. No, it isn't. Uh, Finbogi believes that he's going to die on Wait the Wait a minute. Now, we just met this guy. We haven't even been talking about him for five minutes. This is Finbogi's saga. He can't die here. <laughs> well, he believes he's going to die. <laughs> All right. Uh, so he lays down... And Erdercott puts Finbogey's head in his lap. Oh, I like that part. It, it's just a nice touch, very tender. Good, good job for the writer. And Finbogey says that he is grateful for Erdercott's help and for his friendship. Mm. That he wishes he could reward him properly. Wait. <laughs> he then gives Erdercott the weapons that his father Bard had passed down. This to him. sounds like a death speech. This isn't good. 
He also gives Urthercott all the remaining goods from the trading vessel. That's actually very kind of him. And lastly. Lastly. <laughs> oh, this is worse than I thought. <laughs> lastly, he says, I also want to give you my name. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. I'm so tired of saying Urthercott. <laughs> Finbogie is such a cool name. I, I, maybe we should have started right here. Really? It sounds to me like a Scandinavian with a nose cold. <laughs> he's, got, he's got fin bogies. <laughs> no, I like fin bogey. I think it's oh, cool. But now no. you've ruined it. <laughs> now fin bogey also – now this is fin bogey, the one laying on the ground. Uh, with his dying breath, says that he believes that Urthercott's name, now fin bogey, uh, will be famous for as long as the world is inhabited. It will be a great honor, he says. Such an excellent man as he expects Urthercott to be will carry the name of Finbogie. Mm. It's all very touching. Mm. Um, until you look at it another way, where Finbogie's basically using his final moment on Earth to once again tell Urthercott how much he hates his name. I mean, <laughs> he just can't let this go, can he? Well, in fairness, it's a terrible name. Yeah. But he also gets to attach himself to Urthercott's legacy this way by uh, giving him the name Finbogie. So it's a smart mm-hmm. move. Yeah, you're right, and and we're we're talking about him now, aren't we? So I guess I'll say, well done, Finn Bogey. Your prophecy has come true. There you go. It did indeed. Finn Bogey is dead. Long live Finn Bogey. Section five. Finn Bogey goes to Norway. Now we should be clear that we're not talking about the dead Finn Bogey anymore. No, nope. this is we're not floating his corpse back to Norway. Uh. This is just that, like every good Icelandic youth worth his salt, Finbogi decides to make a name for himself by traveling to Norway. And uh, Finbogi's 16 now, by the way. Right, which means in human years he's 32. Is that how this works? I think mm-hmm. I get it now. Now, I don't, uh, I don't think that that formula continues throughout his ah. growth and development period, but I would wager that he does look far more like a man than a teen at this stage. Unfortunately for Finbogi... The trading vessel that he's traveling on gets caught in bad weather as they approach Norway. Mm. And they crash on a rocky shore. Don't they always? Oh, yes. Now, as you might expect, everyone on the ship dies except for one man. Finn Bogey. Ah, how'd you know? Well, it must be something about that name. Mm. Now, the the ship crashed on the shore of a steep cliff, which is kind of bad for Finn Bogey. But, you know, after surviving the shipwreck, he has to now figure out a way to climb a, a large cliff. Oh, but this is Finn Bogey. This isn't a big deal for him. And it isn't, actually. But uh, <laughs> but when he gets to the top of the cliff, the, the winter storm that kind of wrecked the ship, it kicks up again, and his clothes, which are already wet, freeze solid. Mm. So now he's got to stumble around in a strange land in frozen clothes looking for shelter somewhere. Right. And he's, but he's able to stagger up to the home of a farmer named Bard. And now is this Bard Finbogie's father? No, no. It's just a farmer named Bard. Good. Yeah, because that would have been too much of a coincidence for me. I don't think I would have appreciated that. (laughs) Right, because everything else in the saga so far has been so believable. Sure, but there's not much to say about this bard. We can Mm -hmm. say that he's a nice guy, uh, and he has a warm house and a relatively good disposition. And he gets along well with Finbogey. He does. He even helps organize a group to salvage all the goods from the shipwreck for Finbogey. Now, that shipwreck, I think, actually turned out to be quite fortunate for Finbogey. Mm. I mean, he gets to keep all of those goods for himself now. Suspiciously fortunate, one might almost say. No. Are we suggesting that uh, there might be some skullduggery afoot? 
No, I am not. Okay. Not, not my fin bogey. Right. He wouldn't do that. Well, your young fin bogey is off to a good start in Norway, uh, even though he missed his mark of landing anywhere near Earl Hawkins' court. Mm-hmm. But he'll get there eventually. He will. And I think this is actually fortunate for him because it gives him time to make a name for himself in Norway. Well, what better way to make a name for yourself than by fighting a giant bear? A giant bear, you say? Why? <laughs> it worked for Grettir. I don't see why it can't work for Finnbogging. Yeah, no, there are actually a lot of parallels with Grettir's saga at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, the only difference is that uh, Finnbogi doesn't end up burning the house down when he comes to town and he doesn't make any enemies at his host house. No, of course he doesn't. Because Finbogi is perfect in every way. All right. Now, so over the winter, Bard's territory is harassed by a very aggressive bear. Mm. <laughs> Things get so bad that Bard then calls a regional assembly and they decide to outlaw this bear, placing a high price on its head. Now, this is a part of the saga that needs a bit of scholarly attention. Yeah. How often do we see a bear, or I mean any animal, um, get a sentence of outlawry? No, it's, it is pretty remarkable. I don't recall seeing anything like this, and I don't know that we'll see it again. I mean, we have seen them outlaw the undead, so I guess maybe a bear isn't too much of a stretch. Right. Well, and the point is to get the district fired up about going out to hunt down this bear. Why, why wouldn't they already be fired up? It's killing their livestock and threatening them so that it's not safe to go outside. So I don't understand why they aren't doing something. Were, were they just sitting back waiting for nature to take its course and this bear to die of old age? Well, whatever they're doing, the outlawry seems to have very little effect. Uh, oddly Surprise. enough, the bear does not decide to cut and run. Instead, <laughs> right. it becomes even more I better, vicious. I better become a uh, voracious right. guard. Right. I'd, I'd, I'd hate to, for anyone to dislike me. Uh, right. The bear starts killing livestock now, along with any people who uh, get in his way. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we have heard this story once before, haven't we? Mm. Uh, what what Bard needs is a hero, someone with superhuman strength who can come in and teach this monster a lesson. We don't need another hero. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, what? He needs a hero. But uh, uh, Beowulf and Greta are busy, so that's not going to happen. Well, I'm pretty sure Beowulf's quite dead by this time, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but uh, Bard probably should just look around the table and ask the superhuman fella that he's got right there. Well, instead, Bard does plan a large hunting party to go kill the bear. But they need to prepare their weapons first and get a good night's rest. Which is fine, because Finbogi is on the job. Yeah, this is kind of a weird scene, Mm -hmm. but it it is reminiscent of Gretcher's battle with the bear. In this case, Finbogi waits until everyone is asleep, and then he creeps out of the house. Then he walks backwards towards the bear's territory. I'm sorry, you said he walks backwards. I did, he walks backwards. Why is he walking backwards? I can't really say, but I, I, I suspect that he doesn't want it to look like he left the house and came back. So he's very humble, you see. <laughs> he, he, he's not eager to boast and take credit for killing the bear, assuming that he achieves this goal. Right, sure. sure. Yeah, finbogie has been known for his humility so far. This is the same guy who made the serving women sing his praises before he was willing to kill a bull for them, right? <laughs> no, no, not really. But, you know, I, I like to think that the saga starts developing a, a sense of humility for Finbogie around this time. Uh-huh. I mean, he doesn't really mouth off that, all that much uh, or brag, but he is bold for the rest of the saga. Well, I mean, he'd have to be to approach a bear by himself backwards. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think he turns around when he gets to the bear. I hope um, so. But, you know, I now that I, I've said all that, I, 
I think he does boast quite a bit, and mm-hmm. he, he is a little bit of a braggart, but whatever. Anyway, so he does find this bear. Yeah, no, I believe it's laying over the body of a sheep sucking the blood out. <laughs> right, sucking the blood out. It's a lovely scene, and, and what what happens next is even more fascinating. Finbogey calls out to the bear, Hey, bear, stand up and attack me. Is that your Finbogey voice? It, it is right now. I'm sure it'll change at some point. <laughs> <laughs> the the bear then sits up and looks him over, but but then flops back down and continues to suck on this sheep. Finbogey surmises that the bear doesn't want to fight him because he has armor on, so he throws off his helmet and shield, and, and then he taunts the bear again. And again, the bear sits up and then flops back down, not ready to fight. And finally, Finbogey says, I understand. You want to fight on equal terms. <laughs> And with that, he sounds exactly like a 16-year-old, doesn't he? Yeah. (laughs) And with that, he throws away his sword and then taunts the bear again, saying, You're a coward if you refuse to fight me. And the bear grabs the sword and says, Ha ha! No. That's not what happens. (laughs) No, no. The bear doesn't like being taunted. No. And and he he does, however, I think, like that Finbogey is now defenseless. Right. Well, now the bear stands up and shows its anger. Uh, he leaps at Finbogey and raises a paw to strike. But Finbogey's ready, and he closes the distance as the bear strikes, running in underneath the bear. Now the two are going to start fighting for a long time, trampling the ground, uprooting everything in their path. In the end, Finbogey manages to force the bear onto its back, and then he breaks its spine. Didn't we just do something similar to this with the bull? Yeah, we did. Um, I think you're going to notice, as we said earlier, there's a lot of repetition in this saga particularly in terms of how Finbogey kills things. That is certainly true for the first part of the saga, but I think once he gets back to Iceland later on, we'll see him slip into more of a standard saga-feuding narrative mode. Right, no, I think that's that's a pretty regular commentary about this saga, that it's it's almost got two different sort of tonal registers in its two halves. Uh, Right now, it's really more in these folktale beginnings of Finbogey's life that we see this kind of thing. Yeah, and I guess that's appropriate. I mean, it's not unlike Vatensdal Saga in that regard, actually, mm-hmm. if, if you think about it. That that one started True. off with a lot of folk motifs and then transitioned into a traditional saga once they got to Iceland. So it's not surprising that we're getting these kinds of stories in Finbogi, um, if he is, as it seems to be, a folk hero for the Flatirdal region. Sure. You can imagine oral stories being passed around about him. Uh, or I mean, if he's not a folk hero, you know, oral stories of this kind are then merged with Finbogi's life. When it came time to invent a past for the guy who got such a bad reputation in Mottensdal Saga. And I think you'll find that his kinsman Berg actually comes off worse there. Mm-hmm. But but generally speaking, I agree with you. Okay, so the bear is dead. Long live the bear. Uh, <laughs> Finbogi then does something really strange. He takes the carcass and rearranges it over the sheep in the pose that he found it in. Then he sneaks back to Bard's farm, presumably walking forwards this time. In the same footsteps, probably. Right, and crawls into bed without disturbing anyone. And then in the morning, Bard wakes up and gathers everyone, and he asks Finbogey if he's coming on the bear hunt with them, and Finbogey says he's happy to join in. Which is just so odd to me. I mean, I don't see the motivation of the payoff here, although, once again, we're dealing with a folkloric motif, right? We see right. virtually the same thing in Hrolf's Saga Kraka after Balthvar Bjarki kills a troll, a flying troll monster. Mm, good call. Well, I mean, I, I imagine that for Finbogey, the discovery of the bear by this group of men must be really fun to watch. I mean, they're all afraid as they slowly approach this bear when they spot it, but 
Then they creep close enough and they realize this is a dead bear. And then they look closer and they see no visible wounds and they're all like, what the hell happened here? <laughs> it doesn't really take long for them to figure out what happened though. And mm-hmm. Bard is convinced that Finbogey must have been the one to kill the bear. Sure, but, you know, being humble, Finbogey doesn't claim the victory. He just says, you can believe whatever you wish. <laughs> His voice has changed substantially. Is that supposed <laughs> to be humble? Is that what you think yeah. is going on here? I can't help but feel like Finbogey is sort of subtly putting one of his feet in one of the footprints on the, in the snow as he says this. Like, well, think whatever you want. I don't know. You know, I I do have a feeling there's a bit of smugness in a little bit of everything that Finbogey mm-hmm. does. Yeah, you think? Uh, when, <laughs> when Bard asks how he did it, Finbogey says, it doesn't matter. Neither you nor your son will be able to do anything like it. Oh. If that's not smug, I don't know what smug is. That's smug, but uh, it's also true, so... And I don't think Finbogey rejects the bounty on the bear's head either. No. So I, I think we can drop this narrative of him being humble. Uh, he's, I mean, like any good saga figure, he's calculating and a little bit full of himself. Mm-hmm. But he is also very capable and not too difficult to get along with. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got all the ability of Gretir, which I think is intentional on the part of the saga author. Uh, but he's also quite good-natured. Yeah, and like I said before, he's a little too perfect. Oh, I'm sorry. He can't be more flawed for you. <laughs> Section 6 Finbogey and Alf <laughs> Alf, huh? <laughs> what can I say? So Finbogey's life with Bard is pretty happy But his ultimate goal is still to visit the court of Earl Hawken And an opportunity is going to present itself one day When Finbogey sees a large man rowing along the shore This man turns out to be Alf The brother-in-law of Earl Hawken himself on his way up to Finmark to collect taxes for the Earl. And don't forget his nickname. He's Alf Afterkemba, the swept-back hair. Oh, well, there's a nice nickname for you. <laughs> I'm going to uh, wait until the judgment section to tell you what I think about that nickname. Oh, I think I know what you think, and I think I agree. Business <laughs> okay. in the front, party in the back. <laughs> That's not what I'm thinking, but uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, so their conversation is kind of fascinating to me because neither one of them is outright rude to the other, but there's something underneath the surface that I think is meant to make us uncomfortable. Oh, they're definitely sizing each other up throughout mm-hmm. the whole thing. I mean, Finbogey has a bit of a reputation for killing that bear now, and Alf wants to know how he did it. And Finbogey gives what has become his signature smug reply, saying, that doesn't matter to you because you won't do any killings that way. <laughs> I mean, come on, Finbogey. You're asking for trouble. Yeah, he is. But, I mean, his arrogance is revealed then to be hereditary. It turns out that Alf knows Finbogey's father, Asbjorn. And Alf says, oh, then it's not surprising if you behave arrogantly. Wait, why does Alf speak with the same voice you use for Finbogey? <laughs> It's not exactly the same. It's it's slightly different. Now, there's another veiled threat in the conversation as well that I don't quite understand. Uh, besides Alf doing an impression of Finbogey, apparently. Uh, <laughs> when Alf asks Finbogey how old he is, Finbogey says 17. Then Alf says, don't increase your size and strength as much in the next 17 years as you have up till now. I, I assume he's meant to be cheeky here, but... Yeah, Finbogey apparently right. takes offense. He says, that will ter- be as it turns out to be, even though you're likely to be dead before the time is up. Oh. That's, I mean, that's, that's a serious ratcheting up of hostilities. It sure is. 
<laughs> now, what's up with that? How's that called for? I don't know. I mean, it's it's definitely uncalled for. But, you know, somehow Alf in this whole conversation comes off the slimier. Uh, the, you know, Finn Bogey comes yeah. off better. I don't know yeah. why. No, he does. Uh, part of that is that after Alf leaves to collect the taxes, Finn Bogey learns from Bard that Alf is the worst kind of man and extremely treacherous. Mm. He's the kind of guy that takes advantage of his position in court as Earl Hawkins' brother-in-law. So it's understandable if he comes across as a bit more slimy than the arrogant Finn Bogey. And this is often, I think, something that we see with sort of the, the Norwegian courtier. He's kind of a figure mm-hmm. in sagas. And Alf kind of occupies that position. Absolutely. Sort of corrupt uh, mid-level official. Yeah. Something Icelanders wouldn't be too keen on. Right. Now, I prefer, because of that, I prefer to think that uh, Finn Bogey maybe sensed that and mm-hmm. was simply showing Alf that he's not one to be pushed around. Right. It's possible. There's just not enough in the evidence in the conversation either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whatever happens, uh, Alf has agreed to stop and pick up Finn Bogey on his way back from Finnmark with the taxes. And after that, he'll take Finn Bogey to Earl Hawken and introduce the two of them properly. See, it sounds like things are going to work out anyway. Oh, yeah. But yeah, but you'd only believe that if you were naive. <laughs> I mean, when, when a saga tells you that someone is dangerous and treacherous and unjust, you, you better believe that that guy's trouble. And Alf is. Yeah. Uh, when he returns to pick up Finn Bogey, his boat is full of money from Finnmark. And as Finn Bogey steps into the boat, he notices that Finn Bogey is much heavier than he should be. Hmm. His eyes turn to Finn Bogey's leather sack, which Alf guesses is full of silver. And this is where the trouble really starts. But uh, Alf is subtle, or at least he tries to be subtle about it. Yeah, yeah he's for a given value of subtle. It's, it's hard to be comfortable around this guy, particularly when he pulls the boat up to a small island in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> right. Now, I'm Alf claims at this point that it's his tradition to always stop at this island and spend the night. Hmm. It's a little suspicious. <laughs> I mean, Alf's home island of Sandoy is, is very close. I mean, they could get there with a couple strokes of the uh, oars, but he insists on stopping at this out-of-the-way island anyways. Yeah, um... Alf suggests they leave all the goods in the boat and carry it up into a large cave above the beach. Once they arrive in the cave, Alf goes to fetch water and Finbogi builds a fire. And while he's building the fire, he hears a whizzing sound above him. Now, as fast as he can, he flings himself across the other side of the fire. Right, and as one would suspect, Alf has come to this island with the hope of killing our hero. Uh, <laughs> Alf rises up and lunges after Finbogi. But Finn Boogie moves in and runs under Alf's guard, closing the distance with the opponent. He seems to be very good at that, actually. Right. And so that means that Alf is about to learn exactly how Finn Boogie killed that bear. Poor bastard. He, he really <laughs> is. But uh, it takes a while because Alf is so strong. And as they fight, the fire finally flares up. And in the glow of this fire, Finn Boogie notices a large rock that's near the back of the cave with quite a sharp edge on top. Ugh. And anybody who's ever seen, you know, any action movie knows what's going to happen next. Right. Uh, Alf sees it as well and tr- and moves to bring Finbogi over toward this sharp rock. And realizing what Alf intends, Finbogi allows Alf to move him toward the rock, which might seem counterintuitive if you're not superhuman like Finbogi. And when they reach the rock, Finbogi suddenly breaks Alf's hold, jumps up, and with a powerful jerk, pulls Alf's breastbone across the sharp rock. And the saga says that Alf died there without honor as he deserved. And that, my friend, 
is a brilliant place for us to end part one of our summary of the saga of Finbogi the Mighty. Right. Now we know that Finbogi is eager to meet Harold Hawken and make a name for himself in Norway. But he has just killed the Earl's brother-in-law. Ooh, this is almost like a uh, cliffhanger. How will the Earl respond to this? Is Finbogi headed down Gretter's path of chaos and destruction? Or will our golden boy find a way to clear his name and rise up into the pantheon of saga greats? Yeah, probably not. But there's only one way to find out. Tune in next time when we attempt to conclude Finbogi's saga. <laughs> I like that you said attempt. Yeah, I think that we are unlikely to finish next time unless we short shrift a lot of the good stuff. Um, we got a lot of wrestling matches with other things like other bears and magical black creatures. And there's a whole feud with uh, Yokel Ingemunder, son of Vansdahl. What are we going to do? Uh, I want to finish this before summer. <laughs> oh, sorry, <laughs> we need to get dude. a move on. Yeah, fine. We'll see what we can do. All right. It gives me more time to prep our next saga. Mm-hmm. Hey, and don't forget that uh, we will be posting a special saga brief in honor of the fourth season of Vikings pretty soon. That's right. Uh, this time out, we're going to be looking at the historical Rollo and the story of the Vikings in Normandy. Should be a good one. Yeah, I can't imagine we're going to have too much to say about the historical Rollo. Is there anything really out there on him? Not much, right? Oh, just you wait and see. I've been busy. Ooh. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I'm all a flutter. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. This is the saga brain, my friend.